cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Today, our discussion is with John Hamry, the CEO and president of CSIS. As the Deputy Secretary of Defense, he was really the first senior official to prioritize cybersecurity, in part in reaction to an incident called Moonlight Maze, maybe the first major cyber espionage effort against the U.S. John set DOD and the U.S. government on the course of making cybersecurity a national priority. You know, people started thinking about cybersecurity long before it became so trendy and with everyone being a cybersecurity expert. And you were, I think, the first, in some ways, senior official who really brought this to the fore of policymaking. What was the thing that got you started on this? Before I became the deputy secretary, the department conducted this thing called eligible receiver. And this was a a war game. Mm -hmm. The eligible receiver series is a war game series that the joint staff runs. And it's about testing some national level Mm decision-making crisis. How well does the White House and the Defense Department, intelligence community coordinate, that sort of a thing. Before I was ever there and really was not part at all of the planning, they designed this eligible receiver exercise that tested cyber hacking penetration. So after I got in, uh, I learned about it. it. What really gave urgency to it was this now comical episode. I think it was called uh, Solar Sunrise was Mm -hmm. the name of this operation. Two kids in Cloverdale, California that hacked into Air Force email systems, basically. You know, very knew so little. The Air Force was the only service at the time that had any intrusion detection software. (laughs) They, They were the only ones that knew they had a problem. The Army and the Navy both viewed it as an extension of base operations. Mm -hmm. It was like the telephone system or the electric system. It wasn't viewed as a integral to war fighting, and it wasn't viewed as being a particular challenge or a threat. It was viewed as just being a utility function. Just to give you an example, we we had a series of these kind of attacks on al-Qaeda types in Pakistan. We were trying to punish them for things they were doing. After we had launched a strike, another Air Force general officer who was on the joint staff conducted a little exercise. He said, how long would it take us to find out where the spouses of the commanding officers of the ships that launched the cruise missiles, Mm -hmm. how long would it take us to find out where the spouses worked? And it was about two hours doing internet searches. But that was because at the time, you know, every ship had a website and it was viewed as a public affairs function. Today, the ship is steaming X, you know, and so that's how they kept 
kept in touch with the families. Back then, all of the, uh, you know, we would post the names of the family members on the resumes of officers. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was very easy because it, we viewed everything as a public affairs function. Hmm. Um, I remember going to see Hugh Shelton. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and brought him. I said, Hugh, let's take a look at the website of your house on Fort Myer. Your house has a website. Did you know that? Well, no. Okay, here's what it is. It pictures of it. It showed a floor plan. It showed from all four angles. I said, now what would a terrorist think when you hand them this kind of preparation for you? You know, he was shocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the naivete hmm. that existed 20 years ago, 25 years ago. We're not at all reflective about what was happening. So it was that incident, Solar Sunrise, that we didn't really know what it was. It had ominous dimensions to it. We were looking at the time the attacks were taking place. It turned out it was after school break in California, but it could have been, you know, early morning in Moscow, you know, type thing. So I was invited to have breakfast with a small group of journalists that got together once a month. And it was kind of a breakfast thing, supposedly off the record, mm-hmm. you know, conversation with senior people in government. And I decided to tell them that we were under a cyber attack at that breakfast. Mm-hmm. Secretary Cohen was furious. With you? Yeah, he was just, he was furious because he said, you shouldn't be revealing this. Mm. But I knew there was no way to get a focus in the department unless it became a big public deal. You know, I knew we were going to get hearings that would come from it. We were going to, mm. it was going to be congressional inquiry, all that. I, it, I knew it, but I said, it was what we were going to have to do. Because how are you going to get a department that is just so cavalier about an issue to start thinking seriously about it? And so, so you were you were kind of a visionary then, and you were looking ahead. I think it was an accident, honestly, but it did make a difference mm-hmm. uh, because it was it was a way in which we could finally mm-hmm. get everybody in the department to start thinking about it. All the service chiefs started asking, "Well, what's going on with us? Mm-hmm. Well, how do we do it?" I hate to say it, it takes a big public deal like that to mm-hmm. mo- mobilize it. Uh, I, I'd like to tell you I thought it was a grand strategy. It wasn't, but it was just saying we we know so little and we are so ill-prepared mm-hmm. at that time that we have to do something. And it was coming at a time when we were shrinking, the budgets were shrinking. But I think it did get things started. There was another, it was parallel, not related exactly, but it's also something you and I worked on together, Jim, and that was the battle over is there going to be a government-controlled encryption regime? Again, this had predated my time being the, the mm-hmm. deputy, so I really was walking into it. You were working it longer than I had. And that's where we first met. What I was learning was we could tactically defeat the IT industry on the Hill. We could intimidate members of Congress into backing down. But the process, we were going to lose control of the issue because they saw a global market and they were going to move their encryption stuff overseas. We were going to lose them as a partner in our capacity to defeat them tactically. You had pretty close ties with some of the big companies back then. I would say close ties, but when I finally said, okay, we're not, mm-hmm. this isn't working, we have to change, I did call Craig Mundy, who sure. at Microsoft at the time, and because he had come in to talk about something. And, and so I called him, I said, Craig, we need to talk. When are you coming? And he says, how serious is this? I said, pretty serious. I want to talk to you about whether we want to change our approach here. And so he came fairly quickly, and we, we struck a deal. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to need your help. I'm not asking you to 
do anything other than, you know, let us work with you in the same way anybody would work with you. But in, this, in exchange for that, we're going to back off on this encryption thing because it isn't going, I can tactically prevail, but I'll strategically lose. And he, so it was a deal. And then he opened the door, he started talking to John Chambers, and he started with other people. And we had at that stage, there were a couple of big guys in the telco world. And it started a partnership, you know, and ultimately it has to be that. You know, they never gave us secrets or anything like that. But it, it allowed us to have a dialogue with them to understand where things were going and we could do our work as a government. This might be a tricky one, but at the time you kind of oversaw the intelligence side of uh, DOD activities and when you thought about what DIA was doing and more importantly what NSA is doing, how did you think about moving them to the cyber environment? Uh, that's really an interesting question because at the time, you know, NSA was confronting two problems. One was they had overwhelmingly invested themselves in the big, giant, monolithic supercomputers, you know, the big craze, at a time when the world was moving to distributed processing. And so they had a, they had a massive investment that was becoming obsolete. The second problem that they had was the, the whole shift away from data in motion to data at rest. It's no longer positioning yourself with a sensor that can grab electrons or microwaves that are zipping past you and then you put it together. It is how do you get inside networks and read things? You know, so it was data at rest became the target rather than data at motion and a need to dramatically reconfigure the computing infrastructure for NSA. So actually the leverage was their need for money to shift this computing infrastructure. But I would say it was not fighting them, it was rationalizing it along the way and making sure that we had a cooperative relationship. You know, NSA at the time, like all of the intelligence agencies, had the, they ran rather freely between two control environments. How, how useful was NSA on the defensive side for both the country and the department? They'd originally thought if we get this encryption solution, it will protect people's data, it will protect their communications. They didn't get it. No, uh, and to be honest, you know, the, in, a, in a DOD environment, offense is 100 times more mm -hmm. interesting and sexy than defense. I mean, we're, we're pretty poor at mine warfare. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't countermine warfare. It's not manly. We love bombers. You know, we don't like minesweepers in our world. That's the same way with cyber. So much creative energy in the offense, and when you'd say, okay, now how are we doing protecting our own stuff? And it was always a very fuzzy. So I, I think, again, it's a lot of mistakes if I look back. I mean, I think one of the big mistakes, Jim, was for us to call this uh, cyber war because it caused an awful lot of people on the civilian side to say, we don't do war, that's DOD. And if we had talked about it as being criminality, we could have changed the narrative and probably moved it faster, especially the private sector. But even then, when it was clear that people like China and Russia were stealing intellectual property left and right, they still didn't do that much, you know, until it hit them personally. It really is amazing how private sector has lagged what you would think would be natural, but it's the pressure of profit margins. How about your interagency colleagues? I know Justice had a concern, but the rest of them? You know, we didn't have a Department of Homeland Security then. Mm -hmm. So back then, the center of gravity was justice and the intelligence mm -hmm. community and us. I would say that the intelligence community, 
First of all, the, the, there was a profound difference between us and the intelligence community, which is when it came to offensive cyber, mm-hmm. the intel world was pretty open about the tools. They were just ultra-secret about the targets, whereas DOD treated the tools ultra-secret. You know, and so we there was a real mismatch in how we thought about things, and it showed up, you know, in those very, very crude, limited early exercises when we went to war in Kosovo. You know, we we I remember a, a battle between DoD and the Intel community over launching a cyber attack on Target. Actually, it was a phone system, and it was amateurish what we were thinking to do, and many meetings back and forth between us and the Intel world. And finally, the Intel world said, okay, you can go ahead and do it because nobody uses that that particular network. We're not interested if you disrupt that one because nobody uses it. You know, it was that limited. Now, I think I think they're much, much better now, but I'm not sure that the legal environment and the policy environment is clear. Mm. You're closer to this than I am now. I mean, I was asked this the other day about cyber war, and I said, I think we've got a lot of the tools but I don't think we have any idea about how we would fight a war. What would be our objective? How would we operationalize a campaign? How would we establish both objectives as well as make it clear to opponents when we've won, when they've lost, what it means to go on, what it means to stop? I mean, the sort of things you do Mm -hmm. kinetically, I don't think we know how to do any of that. Did you think about that in the Serbia? We had such limited capacity. Mm -hmm. Back then, I mean, we had we had a few traditional, uh, but they were more like electronic warfare tools than IT mm-hmm. cyber tools. The only cyber tools that we had at the time were really quite limited, quite crude. Um, we had some fairly sophisticated EW things, and they were bottled up in classic the politics of war. You know, how does how mm-hmm. does it match your diplomacy? How do you does it, how do you work with allies? How do you communicate to an opponent what you've done to them? You know, I mean, all those sorts of things which we know about in the kinetic world, we didn't really know how to do any of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Moonlight Maze? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. Within the constraints yeah, of what's within possible. The constraints. I mean, yeah. this, was, this was with Solar Sunrise, it, because it was two high school kids, it, it mm-hmm. were, that, was, that kind of put everybody into a lackadaisical mm. attitude for a while. You know, this, okay, this isn't that serious. It was Moonlight Maze that really transformed the department to think about this. I mean, all of a sudden they realized, you know, we're now up against a very capable, hostile intelligence service. At the time, I mean, by comparison to today, it would be pretty limited. But back then, it was fairly sophisticated forensics. You know, I think we were pretty confident we knew where things were. But you're dealing with a classic, you know, when two intelligence services go to war with each other, mm-hmm. you know, how do you how do you fight that war? And then I must confess, it dissolved into a series of engagements and confrontations uh, with Russia uh, that just were never resolved. And then I don't have clear recollections after that. To the extent you can, what did a confrontation look like back then? We're still doing it today. Yeah, it was. It's a little different. Uh, remember, this was at a time when there was a so-called gore chernomirdin process. This was where, you know, we were trying to help the Russians get through the trauma. You remember all of that. And so there there was every t- every six months, you know, the, the government would come together at fairly senior levels. Mm-hmm. And so we had that going on, although it was getting uh, scratchier. Mm. And then Moonlight Maze. And so the harder dilemma was, what do we do inside our own government about confronting Russia? Because we didn't want to lose mm. 
this channel of collaboration, even though that channel was breaking down fairly rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so it was an awful lot of internal, you know, kind of what can we do? Kind what of do like 2016. Do? Yeah. It's not, it was just an, it was just an older version of mm-hmm. kind of what we're living with now. Unless you're prepared to, you know, do something for sharp demonstration purposes, meeting with somebody and confronting them doesn't produce much. You know, it's, mm-hmm. like, it's like telling Lavrov, you guys interfered in our election. Uh, no, we didn't. <laughs> it did, I think, Jim, the highlight the need for as much forensics capacity as possible to eliminate uncertainties. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, did they really do it? Who really did it? What can we say authoritatively about what happened? I think what Moonlight Maze did was it kind of set in motion that, more than anything, creating the imperative for stronger forensics, at least in the department. What um, were the Chinese up to then? They weren't, at the time, they were not particularly skilled. Mm-hmm. They have become very skilled. At the time, they were not very skilled. And because so much of Chinese IT ecosystem was pirated, mm-hmm. you know, they also had a lot of vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, so we knew a lot. Yeah, still and, true. Uh, yeah. And I think it's probably still true. But they were not back then particularly skilled. I remember kind of people saying, you know, the, real, the really skilled people are the Russians, the Ukrainians, Israelis, the French. You know, those were the really skillful operators at that time. China wasn't considered at that time to be a skillful operator. They've certainly closed the gap. Uh, They've thrown a lot of resources at it. They've nurtured a uh, rising generation. You know, so they've got a lot of talent now, you know, and it's a big Mm -hmm. challenge. You know, one thing that you learn in the government is that it's really hard to get this ship to change direction or to increase speed. What would you have done differently looking back? I think th- I think it was right to let the world know we were under cyber attack. I think mm-hmm. that because it, it got the, the department moving. I think I would have asked the secretary to be more directive mm-hmm. on imposing things on the department. I mean, I we, we tried to basically nurture people to bring them along mm-hmm. rather than say, well, this is what we're going to do. Uh, and, and I guess if I think I probably failed that way. Um, I think that Congress was a, was a complication then. Mm-hmm. They were both an, an asset in highlighting a problem but then they, but there was a lot of, as you recall, a lot of scratchiness between the, the Clinton administration, especially after Monica Lewinsky stuff. So there was always an, a desire to score coup, you know, to mm-hmm. draw blood, you know, when there was a problem. And uh, we got through it as, as acceptably, but I really wish we'd had a, another shot at how to deal mm-hmm. with that. It got to the point where I didn't tell some members of Congress important things because they were going to use it politi- mm, politically sure. just to embarrass the administration. And yeah. that was not going yeah. to help. That was the first time I testified. <laughs> it was a remarkably painful experience. I'm still yeah. in the government then. It's a yeah. lot more fun yeah. now. What did you learn from it that would be useful? And particularly, one of the things I want to ask you about is DHS, because some people say it's on the same path. It's where DOD was in, say, 1948. What did you learn useful out of your experience in pulling the department together? Well, it was a mistake to have called it cyber war, Mm -hmm. but it was a vocabulary that DOD understood. The question about DHS is what is it that would make them mobilize themselves effectively on cyber? I'm not sure it's possible. 
Mm. And in any event, it took NSA 50 years to develop capacities. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be a mistake to try to create another NSA-like entity. So it, it's more about, I think, establishing stronger command relationships, you know, with DHS. Back, we didn't have a DHS when I was there. The real challenge was, was the attorney general mm. because the attorney general has disproportionate authorities when it comes to domestic incidences. Mm-hmm. This was Janet Reno. It was Janet Reno. And so so I worked very hard to have a relationship with her on, on a series of things. And she was very constructive. We actually had a series of seminar-based, they weren't war games, but they were simulation-based mm-hmm. seminars that would, on issues where we knew we had to work through some things together, you know, dirty bombs, that kind of stuff. And uh, I really wish we had done more of that on cyber back then. We just were so poorly organized ourselves that it was it was hard to find a way to, to connect. I did have a modest, I still feel very positive about it, but a very modest relationship with the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was more on counterintelligence because what we came to realize was that the counterintel world was very unprepared mm-hmm. for the way that hostile intelligence services were using IT. The Clinton administration did start uh process under General Marsh that ultimately led to, um, was it PDD-63? Yeah, that was the Marsh Commission. Yeah. Yeah. What did you have to do with that? Well, you know, Tom, I didn't know Tom before Mm. I met him on the hearing circuit. Basically, there were a series of hearings where he would be the witness and I would be the punching bag. You know, I mean, he would be talking about all the things that we did that we were not getting right, and I was there to take the blows type thing. But we became friends, and, and uh, it was kind of late in the administration mm-hmm. when when that turned into a PDD, and by then, we had produced enough momentum that it wasn't... I don't have dramatic recollections that have changed things. Where do you think we are now? What would you do now? Putting aside the current dilemmas with the National Command Authority. Yeah. You know, I, again, I was asked this the other day at, a, at something, and people said, "What's how serious is cyber warfare? And I said, I think it's exceptionally serious. I think it's by far the more likely thing we'll experience mm-hmm. if we're going to have warfare that's threatening to America. It's going to be that way. I do think we've got a lot of tools uh, in place. I think the, you know, our capacity to fight and damage is, I think, pretty good. Do we have any idea how we would fight that war? I don't think so. I don't think there's, you know, I think DOD has thought about some elements of it, how, what they would do. But, you know, where are the Herman Kahn types that thought about nuclear war, you know, in 1952, 54, 56, when we were thinking all that sort of deterrence strategy and thinking through how we were going to use an, uh, something radically new and know how to control it politically. I don't know that we've done that. Now, maybe we have. I just don't think we have. But I'd still challenge him whether he thought about it, but the government have a clear idea so, about it. So I don't let's, know. let's use a case study. Um, the last administration uh, was unable to come to terms without a respond to Russian interference. Yeah. And the current administration is moving very slowly in the direction of doing something, but there is no, you're right, there is no doctrine or operational thinking below that sort of decision. We need to impose consequences. Okay, now what? What would you do? What would you do back to Russia, given our hang-up with proportionality? What would you do to create that operational doctrine? 
I'm entirely in the world of speculation. I've, I've not sure. had any classified briefings. I've not been had any conversations with anybody. So this is entirely good. Then you can talk freely. I can talk freely because I don't know what I'm talking about. I think the first the first thing would be to have a pretty good idea of what we could do to them. So, because ultimately, we're going to have to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. With the Russians. With the Russians and mm-hmm. the Chinese. I think, you know, sanctioning seven generals for cyber hacking was just a joke. Mm-hmm. Was it feel good? Yeah, it made you feel good. It, that was a joke. I think it's harder for this administration because it really, you know, it does depend on a coherent White House that right. thinks rationally. And, and uh, when you get a president that is so voluble and spontaneous, you know, it's pretty hard to put a strategy together because it ultimately is a political commitment by the nation to do something, mm-hmm. uh, totally apart from where he is personally on Russia, which I can't figure out. It's going to be a conversation at a, at a fairly high level that says, here's what will happen to you mm-hmm. if you do anything. Uh, I'm not we're going to get into the specifics, but you can count on a 40% decline in your GDP in the first year or whatever. I mean, something like this. Yeah. And more in terms of the outcomes rather than how you would do it. And to say, it is, it will go answered. If you do anything to us, it will go answered. And here's what we will see if you do, for example, if you have the slightest interference with our command and control system that controls nuclear weapons, that will trigger response. You know, I mean, it, whatever the thing is. But I think we have to think through pretty clearly about what do we say is existential, damaging electric power grids. That would be existential. Uh, Americans couldn't tolerate being without electricity for a sure. year. You know, I think we just have to and say, here's what we will do. And um, I personally am very reticent to do these cross-domain deterrence mm-hmm. strategies because mm-hmm. I, I, I just – it always leads to the question, are you willing to use nuclear weapons – it, it turns out to be I, difficult to calculate. It's difficult to calculate. And if 200 people in an intelligence organization attack you, are you prepared to incinerate 10 million innocent people? Mm-hmm. I don't think Americans would ever do that. I don't think a rational American president would ever do that. Do you think we're structured right for this? This is a new kind of warfare, a new kind of conflict. And we're still, when I look at how we're structured, it still I, the first thing that comes to mind is fold a gap. Yeah. Do you think we're structured no. right? Yeah. Because this is a war that will where the target is the private sector. And you know, we've made a massive mistake by doing away with the NSTAC. You know, this was they they created these ISACs, but these ISACs are pretty uneven. The NSTAC worked for one primary reason. They, they actually gave it to DHS. They gave it to DHS, but DHS that killed it. Mm-hmm. The reason it worked was mm. DOD had no regulatory authority over mm-hmm. over the communicate the telcos, so we could create a safe environment for them to meet with us, and it was not threatening for them to be in that environment. It is threatening for them to be in an environment with DHS, so their willingness to share is limited. We need to create a whole different way, and this is what I think DOD should do. I mean, they tried to get at it with the with the uh, enduring security the, framework. Yeah, the NSA group. That and then there's this thing that Bill Lynn, Bill was instrumental, you know, what was it, the DIB, I think he called it? Yeah. Uh, I think that that was his effort to try to get supple, viable, ongoing relationship with the private sector. I don't think it worked. But it did legitimize them to communicate with each other. 
So I think the DIB was effective in letting the industry talk to each other without being afraid of regulatory interference. But I don't think that they got a dialogue with the government because, uh, you know, the problem was taking place within minutes and the government was taking days Mm. to figure out what to say. Building on that, even before this administration and despite Secretary Carter's efforts, relations between Washington and Silicon Valley are worse than they've ever been. What would you do? They are bad. Um, I think that they've been humiliated by the Snowden revelations. But the Snowden revelations were really just kind of braggadocio by NSA about all their great capabilities. It was it was really more embarrassment and, and market vulnerability that I think that caused it. And so now it is pretty bad. It'll take a new kind of a you know, quieter narrative back mm-hmm. and forth. I think it's starting again. I think that General Nakasone is trying mm-hmm. to make headlines about wanting to talk to him. Just talk to them, you know, kind yeah. of a thing. And and uh, and I also would say, you know, Silicon Valley needs the government too. You know, it's the question is how do you have that conversation where that doesn't sound like we're here to intimidate you if you don't work with us. You know, but they do need they do mm-hmm. need the government. They they need the government to be on their side when they're when they're battling intellectual property issue. I mean, the whole question about where we're going with Europe right now. Europe is really calling the shots on how the environment, the government regulated regulated environment, is going to unfold. We're not. You know, I would think that our industry would want us to be working with them. And so it needs to be a conversation. But I don't uh, I don't know how we get there with how we're starting. I mean, it's the John Boltons of the world just have a, a very statist view about security. And Silicon Valley will say, we're not going to work with you. It just takes a very different, I think, attitude. Last question. Where would we go? Uh, Congress, in its uh, wisdom, recently established a cyber solarium. It's um, so is it like the solarium. It's it's to the extent they can remember it. Yeah, Yeah. it's pulled together a group of. It's largely members, I think, but group of people to come up with a cyber strategy. There's a general discontent with how things are going, and that yeah more true than it was even under Obama. So people are saying, we need we need a path to move forward. What would you say for the path? You can make fun of Solarium if you want. I would make fun of it. I think it was such a unique historical, uh, people want to keep reproducing it. I don't think it's possible, but uh, that was because you had a very unique time and a fairly unique president. You know, uh, Eisenhower was, you know, had just fought a, a war. He spent more time with his J-5, you know, his plans guy, with his J-3, his operations guy. And so he was used to thinking strategically, as I think he's one of the reasons why historically there were such important things that came out of that presidency. It, it seems to me pretty hard to get to anything sensible on a government-initiated effort right now. So the question is, are there previous government officials that could become the channel of a new kind of a narrative of conversation with the industry? Mm -hmm. I'm naive to say I think there might be, but I don't know exactly how I would do it. You and I have spoken about, I think, a a Jason-like process, you know, where the government simply helps facilitate the private sector getting together to work through big issues, but we mm-hmm. don't try to tell them what to do, you know, yeah. would be helpful. I think taking the kind of the regulatory thing out of it would be mm-hmm. good. I mean, again, I would recreate the old NSTAC. 
mm-hmm. but make sure that it's because DOD's doing it, but we've got no regulatory authority. We're providing a space, and we just want to talk with you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's going to be something very light touch like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a long time, I thought that could never happen and uh, have to go out of commerce, but I don't think that's possible now. You know, I think commerce doesn't have the, you know, kind of the organizational capacity for it. So I would go back. I'd try to revert back to, to an NSTAC-like model. Mm-hmm. The other, there's another regulatory organization that I find very intriguing, which is the National Transportation Safety Board, mm-hmm. you know, the NTSB. Yeah. They're very effective. And they're effective for one primary reason. They have subpoena authority, but they have no regulatory authority. Hmm. They can compel you to talk to them and give you give them information, mm-hmm. but they they cannot do anything in terms of punishing you or anything of the sort. So they become a safe way to take the negative public relations energy out of a crisis. So an NTSB-like organization, probably run by DOD, I think would probably be where I would try to see if I could get people interested in it. You know, that's it's a it's a different day now. I just don't know if we can get there. I still remember you saying that the Washington was the only place where the hockey team had 11 goalies. 11 goalies and no puck. Yeah. You know, <laughs> unfortunately, that has really kept us from developing a coherent response. It's going to have to be to change the way the private sector thinks about this as a problem. They really are aching now. Where would you do it? Would you do it around justice? I mean, when you get the president demeaning the attorney general every day, you know, who, who's going to go want to work with justice on this issue? When the Department of Homeland Security is just about borders and about, you know, arresting people trying to cross the border and separating kids. So we just don't have the right place. I th- Again, I think it's probably just DOD. Mm-hmm. DOD is the only place that has both the competence, the scale, and can handle things in a dispassionate way. But I'd build it around there if I could, but then I, you know, I'm kind of a partisan for them. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to Cyber from the Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.